0: Well, we're going to open up these ancient scriptures and see what they have to say to us about the purposes of God. Week in and week out, we open these scriptures because the scriptures themselves are one unified story that leads us to Jesus. And it gives us amazing, divine wisdom for living our lives this day. And over this six weeks leading up to the celebration of Easter, we're going to be looking at this series called Create in Me a Pure Heart. Jesus himself... Said these words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What an amazing promise that Jesus lays out before us. The fact that we could have the possibility of seeing God face to face is amazing. And so Jesus says, Blessed are those pure in heart, for they shall see God. And yet, if you have been tuned in to the teachings of Scripture, you know the Scriptures also, with their ancient wisdom, teach us to ask this question. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. What a great question. What a great promise from Jesus. But what a great question that we're trained to ask. We're going to look over the next few weeks At the person of King David, we're going to use him as kind of a a launching pad for us to think about these things. David reigned as king of Israel from about 1000 to uh, 961 BC. He was an unlikely choice to be king, but he was wildly popular with the people. He was actually called at one point in his life a man after God's own heart. What amazing designation that that is! What if that was said about you and me—that we are people who are after God's own heart? David himself wrote so many prayers that are beautiful, that are that are amazing. Most famous of which is probably Psalms uh, 23, that starts out, "The Lord is my shepherd." He's written a lot of other psalms as well. At one point, he wrote Psalm 24, which asked this question: "Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his heart—I'm sorry, his soul—to what is false." Here David tells us that in the, in the cosmology of the ancient Israelites, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, that speaks of Jerusalem where the, the temple was. And who shall stand in his holy place? That's where the nation of Israel believed that heaven and earth connected. And a temple is where you came and you worshipped the Lord. So he says, who can ascend that hill? Who can enter into the presence of God? And he answers the question by saying, he who has clean hands and a pure Heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. We're going to look specifically today at a place in the life of David where everything went wrong. In the books of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, we're given an, an amazing trajectory of David's rise to influence and to power. And here in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we're going to look at his downfall. And then we're going to look at a few words of James, the brother of Jesus as he gives us some analysis and some categories for helping us to understand what went wrong in David's life, what goes wrong in our life. And we're going to see how God addresses that with the gospel of his son. So let's pause for just a moment and pray and ask God to teach us and to to stir our hearts and to, to give us attention so we can learn this ancient wisdom from the scriptures. Let's pray together. Lord, it is indeed an amazing promise that Jesus himself has given Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And yet, Lord, probably it wouldn't take very long for most of us to admit that we don't have pure hearts. We find ourselves to be walking contradictions. We find ourselves with desires uh, that war within us. And yet, enable us to keep this hope alive, that we may see you at last, and that your purposes for us in doing so are summed up in Jesus, both his work and his love for us. So meet us this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. And this is what we're told. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, who was his military commander, and his servants with him, and all Israel. Speaking of the fighting men of Israel, perhaps. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, But David remained at Jerusalem. So, this is an interesting way for the author here to give us this account of how it began to unravel with David. He tells us in the spring of the year, this is when kings went to battle. And in those days, kings led their soldiers into battle. But something different happened on this occasion David remained at Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why, but something already here is catching our attention. In verse 2, we're told, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now, I want you to notice here that David is up on an elevated level. He's at the roof of his king's palace. And he's looking out over Jerusalem. And there he sees a woman who is, who is bathing. And we tend to think of bathing like getting in a bathtub or something like that. They didn't have bathtubs that day. What they did is they poured water over themselves. And so we don't know if Bathsheba, we don't know her name yet. Forget I said that. (laughs) We don't know if this woman um, thought she was um, there in her own privacy. We don't know if she was fully disrobed. We don't know if she was perhaps just washing parts of her body at a time. What we do know is that David saw her. I want you to keep that, that word in mind. He saw her from the roof bathing And this woman was very beautiful. I want you to keep that phrase very beautiful in your mind for just a moment. We're going to come back to that. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, what would you think, given your knowledge of David, that he was described as a man after God's own heart? That he was a poet who wrote so many of the psalms that we have in our Bible. What would you think that this man would do when he saw this woman bathing? You would think that he would divert his eyes. that He would honor her by taking his eyes away from her and giving her the privacy that she needed. But that's not what happened. Something's stirring within him. And so he sends and asks who this was. And they gave this woman who at this point had just been an object of his desire, the name Bathsheba. But we're also told that this woman is a daughter, that she is the wife of someone. So you would think that David, this man who had been described as after God's own heart, who wrote so many of the, the worship songs that we use to, even to this day, that he would have checked himself at this point, this this woman, this object of his desire, she has a name. In fact, she is the daughter of someone who loves her. She is the wife of a man who loves her. So you would think that David would catch himself and go, okay, this is enough. Get my wits about me. But we're told in verse four he did something different. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house. We're we're told here that, that David took her. He sent messengers after her. She went with them. And he laid with her. He slept with her. Now, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine this week about this very issue. And we perhaps of all generations that have gone before us And at this particular moment in time, we can appreciate how there are differences of power in relationship. Here is a woman who is married to Uriah the Hittite. They are foreigners who are living in Israel. She doesn't have much besides her family. David is the most powerful man in the land. And already he's begun accumulating wives to himself most of which were political alliances that nations in that day did. They married, intermarried, gave, gave wives to kings that would seal treaties and covenants between them. He's already been doing that. He's been used to getting what he wants. He has wives, but now he looks and he sees this woman. He desires her. He throws caution to the wind. He sends for her. And in this imbalance of power, he has force themselves upon her. In the conversation I was having with my friend, we were talking and I said, I'm actually uncomfortable with the way this is normally phrased. We talk about David committing adultery with Bathsheba, as if there's two people with equal power coming together here. But the way this passage is laid out for us, indeed, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 places all the issue upon David and what he did wrong. And so here, David saw, he desired, he took. And what I think the text is trying to help us see here is that he is reenacting the fall of Eve. He's reenacting what all of us do when we choose to do something that we know is wrong. In Genesis chapter three, we're told that when the evil one tempted Eve with the fruit that was forbidden, The woman saw that fruit, that it was a delight to the eyes, and so she took it. And here we're told that David saw this woman, that she was beautiful, so he took it. And over and over again, the scripture uses this pattern to teach us what we do. We see something that we want. We determine in our minds that it is good for us to have that, so we take it. David, let me just go back one screen here. We're told here that he laid with her. There's a parenthetical statement that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Israel had a series of laws by which a person, when they became unclean, which meant they were not eligible to enter into the sanctuary of the Lord for a number of different reasons, could undergo certain rituals that would purify them, that would make them they, They would enable them, rather, to be able to go into the presence of the Lord. And so she had been purifying herself. And so I think there's a little clue there that Bathsheba was trying to live her life rightly before the Lord. But then she returned to her house. So David saw that she was beautiful. He did what he wanted to. And now he discards her. He sends her away. And perhaps he thinks that he has done what he needed to do to satisfy whatever urges and whims that he has. And he discards her. She goes back. And probably thinks that she has, he has uh, gotten away with it. And so we're told, verse 5, that the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Those words must have been a blow to David. He begins to scheme. He begins to think about how he can cover up his problem. We're not going to go into all the details of it today. But he arranges for her husband, who is fighting with the men of Israel, to have him actually murdered. He sends a a message to his military commander, Joab, and says to put Uriah the Hittite at the front of the battle where the fighting is the most fierce. And when they're engaged, draw the rest of the troops back. And that's exactly what Joab did. And Uriah was struck down. So David, in his scheming, has managed another problem. But it's interesting. And Down in verse 25, we're told when David gets word that this happened, he tells the messenger these words. Thus she shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. This is interesting. <laughs> David tells Joab, Don't let this bother you. Don't let this displease you. My seminary professor, Ralph Davis, makes the case that this can be translated. Don't let this be evil in your sight. And he wants this messenger to encourage Joab. I wonder why he thinks Joab needs encouragement. David's covering his tracks here, gives him the message to Joab Don't let this be evil in your sight, don't let it displease you. He wants him to be encouraged, because Joab knows the secret. And we're told in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Notice how this verse kind of stacks things to get our attention. This was the wife of Uriah. And when she heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. I wish we knew a little bit more information that was going on here. How did she find this word out? What was she thinking? Did she think God was punishing her? Was she fearful that, that maybe David was behind this? We're not, we're not told, so it's, it's difficult to speculate. We just know that she found out that her husband is dead, and so she laments. I want you to see this broken woman wrapped up in a power game of a man who had all the power and will to carry out his desires, and now her husband is dead. We're told in verse 27 that when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David is not done desiring her. He takes her again, makes her his wife, adds her to his harem. Why didn't he send her back to her father, Eliam? We're just told that he brought her into his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the same phrasing that David used when he sent the messenger to Joab. He said, do not let this matter displease you. But then we're told the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. Verse 9 of chapter 12. The question is asked, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? David saw, David desired, David took, and now his sin is multiplying as he schemes to take out her husband. Now he brings this woman into his harem. He thought he could get away with it. The book of Proverbs tells us there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. C.S. Lewis wrote one time in his book, Mere Christianity, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. Here's David A man after God's own heart at one point in his life makes these little decisions that is increasingly turning him into a different person. I want us to jump ahead to the New Testament here. We're going to look at uh, some words from James, the brother of Jesus. Now, James didn't believe in his brother, Jesus. I mean, he knew Jesus, what he was doing, but he actually thought he was crazy. And he consistently believed that until he met his brother back from the dead. After his brother was crucified, he met his own brother, Jesus. And that convinced him that Jesus really was who he said he was. And so he gave his life to to following him. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He also wrote this book in the New Testament called the Book of James. And in this, he tells us this. I think it's really helpful to, to hear what he says to understand both what happened to David here, but also what happens to us as well. And so this is what he wants us to know. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. James wants us to understand this very clearly, that when we do something that we know is wrong, it is not God's fault I don't know if you've thought like this before, but I would think that probably you have. I know that I have in my past. My role as a pastor, I have conversations with people. And and throughout the years, I've heard a number of different things. Like I remember having a conversation with this one man who said, if God didn't want me to cheat on my wife, then why did he give me the the desire to do so? I've heard it in a number of different ways. If, If God didn't want me to cheat on my taxes, then he should have given me more money. And so we become our own attorneys and we throw it back upon God. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. After um, Adam and Eve took the bite of that forbidden fruit, God came looking for them. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. With the fall of the very first person that God had established to be a representative for humanity, he fell and the first impulse of his heart was to blame God. If you hadn't given me this woman, I wouldn't have sinned. But God cannot tempt anyone with evil. And he himself cannot be tempted with evil as well. Verse, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter five, verse four says, you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. James tells us that that God cannot be tempted from evil. You could literally translate it, he is unable to be tempted by evil. And that matches up with what we learn elsewhere. God does not delight in wickedness. Evil is not something that mixes with him. There was a time in the Old Testament period when the nation of Israel was offering their children to the gods of the nations. And right outside Jerusalem, in in the valley of Hanam the valley that Jesus described as Gehenna in the New Testament, God says this to his people, they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not decree, nor did it come into my mind. The evil that they were perpetrating didn't even come into God's mind as something that would be done by his people, as something that would be acceptable something that he would want them to do. So let's ask this question. Why do we sometimes do bad things? I'm asking this of you if you are a follower of Jesus. I'm asking this of you if you're just thinking about it. I'm asking this as myself as a pastor. Why do we sometimes do bad things? If God doesn't tempt us, and he cannot be tempted by evil, then why do we sometimes do bad things? This is how James answers the question verse 14 but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire James says that we are tempted when something inside of us is activated when we are lured and enticed by our own desires Have you thought about that my friends The reason we sometimes find sometimes we find sin attractive Temptation attractive is because there's something within us that desires. David himself desired. Adam and Eve desired. You and I desire. James says this is where we need to trace the origin of the problem, to the desires within our own hearts. Some of you know who Woody Allen is. He's a filmmaker and has had a, a very uh, interesting career. He's come under fire during the Me Too movement. Uh, back in... Um, I think it was around 2000. um, He was being interviewed, asked about the reason why he slept with the adopted daughter of Mia Pharaoh, his former lover. And he gave a number of explanations. And the interviewer kept pressing him. And then he finally said, The heart wants what the heart wants. Woody Allen is not a Christian. He's not even a theologian. But this point is exactly accurate. The heart wants what the heart wants. David's heart wanted Bathsheba, so he took it. Our hearts want certain things, and so we take it. It might be power, it might be money, it might be another person's reputation. It might be just something that we know that we use for our own pleasure. We see it, we take it. The heart wants What the heart wants. And that raises a question for us, doesn't it? Why does the heart want what the heart wants? Why does the heart want what God doesn't want? And why does the heart not want what God wants? Here's the key thought, my friends what the heart wants, the mind justifies, and the will chooses. What the heart wants, the mind justifies, and the will chooses. I was sharing this with someone recently, and upon hearing that, they go, Whoa, that's convicting. (laughs) Isn't it? It's very illuminating, isn't it? What our hearts want, our our minds are experts at justifying, and the will chooses. Here's what I want us to see, my friends. Even though our hearts want all kinds of things, some things good, some things bad, some things we know God doesn't want us to choose, we sometimes choose them, the good news is that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, whose heart always wanted the right thing, who above all desired God and wanted to live for him. Our hearts are crazy, and they are full of madness and insanity. Jesus' heart was full of beauty and goodness and truth and desired God perfectly, loved others well. The book of Hebrews tells us this in chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted as we are, yet Without sin. Jesus himself faced temptation in this world. But we're told he never once gave in. In fact, Jesus could stand before some of his, his harshest critics and ask them the question, which of you can accuse me of sin? And the response was crickets. Silence. In fact, when they wanted to, to crucify Jesus, to get rid of him, they had to make up trump charges. They had to bring in false witnesses. So James tells us in verse 15, that we're, we're, I, let me just get back up for a second. We're tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desires. And then he tells us in verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brings forth death. My friends, this is why when we look at the scriptures, it goes to links to try to get us to take seriously our sin. Sin wants to lead us down a road away from God. And whenever we move away from God, who is life, we necessarily move towards death. And we sometimes say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little small thing. John Owen was an English theologian, and he wrote these very perceptive words. He said, every time sin rises to tempt or entice, it always seeks to express itself in the extreme. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. And every unbelieving thought would be atheism. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. Think about this with the example we looked at with David. It's just a glance at first. Something entered his mind. Something was stirring in his heart. And he could have killed it right then. He could have said no. But he moved on it. So that temptation that initially grabbed hold of his heart sought to express itself in the extreme. And he was his own worst enemy in that moment. And he used and abused his power to get what he wanted. The grave is never satisfied. So my friends, let me summarize this for us so far. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Biblically speaking, the heart of a person, it's not that organ that beats within us, pumping blood throughout us. The heart is described as the center of our being. It's where the wants and the thoughts and the decisions come from. So the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. James tells us when we're tempted, we allured our way by the desires of our heart. So a few points of application, two to be specific. The first one is this. Accurately diagnose the heart of the problem. We need to diagnose ourselves first and foremost this day. This is not about what the person down the row is thinking of us, not what someone in our, uh, thinking about the issue, not what someone uh, in our life outside of here is thinking. We need to think about this for ourselves. We need to accurately diagnose our heart. We're told in Proverbs chapter 4, above all, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. But here's the thing. What do we do when simply the temptation is not out there, but in here? Some of you know the the TV series 24. I I watched all of these. I, I loved it. It's a crazy Uh, Storyline that kind of kept repeating itself for, I don't know, 10 seasons or something like that. But what was interesting about this is that it always, uh, Jack Bauer, played by Kiefer Sutherland, was a CTU agent, a counter-terrorist unit agent. And so his job was to get to the heart of a problem, a threat, and to deal with that, to to make sure it doesn't go off. And so the show always starts out with this initial problem, and they, they take care of it, but then they find out there's an even bigger problem behind that. And then if you watch the show often enough, and they use the same storyline over and over again, there's always a mole, right? There's someone either within CTU or within the government that's actually working with the terrorists. My friends, there's always a mole within us. There's always something within us that is our own worst enemy. So we're called, yes, to guard our hearts against temptation out there. But what do we do when the desires of our own hearts are against us? The Apostle Peter wrote to some Christians suffering persecution, and he said these words. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Writing to these believers, he tells them, look, there's something going on within each and every one of you. There are desires which are your enemies. They are moles living within you. And they wage war against your soul. My friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that there's something within you that acts as your own worst enemy? The Bible describes this in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's described as the power of sin. Sometimes it's described as our our sinful nature or the flesh. James described it as these desires within us. Here Paul says there are desires which wage war against your soul. So here Peter rather tells them to abstain. I came across this quote once by Paul David Tripp in a devotional called New Morning Mercies, and I thought it was so insightful. It was very convicting to me. He said this. Listen, this is very... We need to hear this. He said, People, locations, situations, don't cause me to sin. They're where the sin of my heart gets revealed. Sin is a matter of the heart before it is ever an issue of behavior. This means... That your and my biggest problem in life exist inside us and not outside us. It is the evil inside me that connects to the evil outside me. So I must confess that I am my biggest problem. That's so, so good. My friends, if we begin to understand this, we can begin to wage war against the desires of our impure hearts and to battle them well. The Apostle Paul, in describing his own battle against sin, had these words. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm thinking of a time when I was a campus minister, talking with a university student who was telling us just some about her own frustrations of following Jesus and how she kept finding herself giving in to the same thing over and over again. And so I open this passage up from Romans chapter 7 and use these words here. But just right before this, the Apostle Paul says, I sometimes find myself doing those things that I don't want to do. And those things that I should be doing, I'm not doing. He describes this battle within him that wages against him. And the student said, I thought I was the only one who felt this way. And I said, you're not. But here's the hope. Wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, in in Jesus, God comes for us, body and soul. He comes after our hearts and after our desires. And this, my friends, is, is part of the key to the battle. We need to see that we have these desires raging within us. And we need to understand that we were to stand against them and to, to battle against them lest they express themselves in the worst case scenarios. So here's the second point of application. Seek superior satisfaction in Christ. It's not enough just to say no to those desires that battle within us. We need to be saying yes to something else. And that yes to something else is described when we use that phrase back in David at the beginning. A man after God's own heart. to to pursue after God, to replace these desires within us that wage with desires for superior satisfaction in Christ. There's a writer by the name of Thomas Chalmers, and he has this excellent essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can find this online anywhere. I'd encourage you to download this and work your way through this essay. Very, very helpful, very insightful. But he said in this essay, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. In context, he's describing the desires of our heart in terms of affections, those things that we want. But the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, a wrong affection, a bad affection, is by the expulsive power of a new affection or a new desire that takes root within us. My friends, that new desire is found in the person of Jesus. And we've got to battle for this. We've got to see it. We've got to to desire it. The key thought here is the battle is not against your joy and happiness, but where you will find your joy and your happiness. David thought in a moment of insanity that it would be found by using and abusing his power to take what he wanted. Rebecca Reynolds, in her book Courage, Dear Heart, it's an excellent book, Letters to a Weary World, writes, Temptation works to pull us from greater joys into lesser joys that fade, joys that can never satisfy us as God's presence can. And so I want to to use this illustration, and and hopefully this helps connect with us. Augustine was a man who, who knew about Jesus And he became convinced intellectually that he ought to follow Jesus. But there was only one problem. He liked to walk on the wild side. (laughs) He liked to party. He liked to see how many women he could seduce and use and abuse and discard. And he knew this was the problem. He actually prayed at one point that God would give him purity, but not yet. (laughs) He, He wanted to be able to indulge his sinful nature Just a little bit longer. And God, in intrusive mercy, rescued him from that. And this is what he would write in his confessions. He said, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure." What an amazing statement. What an amazing confession that Augustine gives to us here. The way he battled was to seek superior satisfaction in Christ, that he himself is actually sweeter than all pleasure. Jesus gives us what we want at the deepest core of our being a sense that we are loved, a sense that we are wanted. A sense that God in Christ is moving toward us to make us new creations in Christ. People who will one day have entirely clean and pure hearts. And so, my friends, in just a few moments at at the communion table, we're going to to sing a song. It's, O God of highest heaven. And this is a prayer, and we're going to pray this. I want you to to use this as we tune our hearts to to seek him and, and to praise him. O God of highest heaven. Occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy will. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. My friends, the point here is for us to give our hearts to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Create in us pure hearts, O Lord. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who who is pure, the one who is sweeter than all pleasure, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, the pure for the impure, the clean for the unclean, that he might bring us to God. Friends, the clue to the dilemma posed by the promise of Jesus that the pure in heart will see God and the issue with our heart that none of us can say we have made our hearts pure is found in Jesus who suffered for us, who gives us new hearts and will one day bring us fully into the presence of God. So my friends, may you find in Christ the King the one who is sweeter than all pleasure, the one who died and now lives to bring us to God.